Hallo allesammen. And I'm switching over to English immediately. Hello everybody. <laughs> Welcome to um, the book launch and seminar. Uh, very happy to, to see you all here. Um, we also had a book launch in, uh, in Parliament earlier today and I'm very happy to see that a lot of you were there as well. So <laughs> it's good that it was so, you found it so interesting that you decided to do it all over again. Um, I'm uh, Sigrid Jakobsen. I'm director of Tax Justice Network Norway. And the reason uh, for this book, um, I'll try to explain shortly. It's estimated that African countries relative to the size of their economies lose more in corporate tax evasion than countries anywhere in the world. And despite of this, um, very little firm evidence and research is done on the effect of tax havens, effect tax havens and capital flight has on, in, uh, has in Af on African countries. So, um, and these are just a s some of the wide range of issues that we need more knowledge and, and, and more knowledge, more public debate is vital in order to be able to shape the future of tax in Africa in a sustainable way. So, uh, Christian Mikkelsen's Institute has wanted to address this gap. Um, and as a part of their research, research uh, project, Taxation, Institutions and Participa Participation, um, this book has come about. It's been uh, made in collaboration with the Mizumba University in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Um, also the Institute of Finance and Econo Economics in Zambia and uh, us in Tax Justice Network, Norway. Um, the inspiration of the book uh, came from a, a previous publication from Tax Justice Network, Norway. But the whole uh, structure, the topics, the examples in from the book have been chosen in collaboration with an advisory committee consisting of, of a journalist uh, in, in Tanzania, civil society organizations uh, in Africa, and, and also tax academics. So um, the main chapters in the book, uh, it's, a it's a collection of, of short articles from academics and, and uh, other tax experts, and they're put in context with introductory chapters. The introductory chapters, they, uh, they, they take you through the issues of tax and tax justice, um, the consequences of capital, uh, capital flows, the tax avoidance industry, the enablers of tax uh, of capital flight, and this cha this a, a chapter especially on, uh, on the natural resources, uh, which is uh, particularly of particular importance uh, in many African countries, and also the politics side of it, the international initiatives uh, that are going on now and, and what are their relevance for, for Africa. And this is actually the fourth leg of an, a kind of an extensive world uh, launch tour. <laughs> uh, uh, this book has already been launched in uh, Nairobi, Kenya, and in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. We had a launch pre previously, as I mentioned, in Parliament, and after this, we we will also have a launch in uh, in Zambia. So, um, of course, in a, when it's a book launch, we have to launch it formally. So I hereby launch the book <laughs> by lifting it. <laughs> um, and uh, 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 lifting the veil of secrecy perspectives if on international taxation and capital flight from Africa, hereby launched also in Kututusa. Um, so we hope this will shed a light on the role of taxation in creating development in Africa, spurred public debate, bring tax researchers and other tax experts closer together, and uh, inspire more research, and we hope you will like it. That's all for me, and I will uh, introduce uh, today's moderator, uh, which is uh, Ingrid Stolfesa. Uh, Ingrid is uh, currently a research advisor for Framtiden i våre hender, the future in our hands, Norway's largest environmental organization. 
working for a fair distribution of the world's resources. And this is the same organization who uh, publishes the wonderful Fair Finance Guides. Ethisk uh, Bank Guide. Um, and Ingrid herself has written reports on tax justice topics for several aid organizations previously. So, giving the word over to Ingrid. Thank you, Sigri, and uh, thank you all for being here this evening. I'm also very happy to see so many people here actually to talk about uh, an issue of high importance, but which uh, rarely actually gets the attention that it deserves. Um, I have been an activist for many years, and I know also that there are many activists here. Um, and as you probably know, many of you are who are here, um, stopping international financial flows has been cited and is often cited by activists and by civil society as the maybe largest single challenge for development. Um, or at least it's been cited as you know, one of the challenges up there. Um, and whether this is actually the case and to what degree this is a claim which is true is some of the questions that we will be discussing here today. Uh, we will also learn more about how the global system of tax havens um, allowing for illicit capital flight and for tax evasion actually impacts African societies. We have a truly impressive panel here this evening, um, we really, really do, um, who together represent some of the leading expertise there is uh, on these issues. Um, and we will start um, today's program with uh, an introduction from each of the four panelists. Um, they are, uh, they will be introduced more in detail later, but they are Odd Helge Fjellstad from uh, Christian Mikkelsen's Institute in Bergen. Uh, it's Dr. Atia Waris from, among other institutes, uh, the law school at the University of Nairobi. It's uh, Catherine Ngine Mutava, uh, Associate Director at the Strathmore Tax Re Research Center in Kenya and was also Olaf Lundestöl from Norad. Um, they will all be talking for about 10 minutes each. This is just to give an idea of how uh, this all will flow. Um, and uh, after that, we will then have time for a panel discussion of about half an hour. Uh, we want to finish off by 7.30. Uh, and during this time, I would really appreciate it if you if you participated. We will open up, there will be plenty of opportunity for you all to ask questions. Uh, there will be, uh, it will be possible to actually ask each of the panelists questions right directly after their introductions. And also we will try to find time for it during the debate. So prepare any questions that you might have, but please be brief because you're not the only one who wants to talk. So, to kick it all off, uh, our first panelist, Ode Helge Fjellstad, I would like to welcome you up here. Um, he is one of the book's editors. He is an economist focusing on taxation, fiscal corruption and capital flight, uh, as mentioned, Christiansen Mikkelsen's Institute. Uh, he is extraordinary professor at the African Tax Institute at, at the University of Pretoria, and also a senior fellow uh, of the International Center for Tax and Development. And um, Helge has actually worked for uh, with these questions for more than 30 years, or he's done research and policy analysis for more than 30 years. Um, 
in Eastern and Southern Africa. He is actually one of the world's leading experts uh, on tax reform and tax institution building in Africa. This, is, this has been told, <laughs> people who, kno who, who know you <laughs> has, has, told me, has told me this. <laughs> yeah, well, that as well. <laughs> um, and also, Fjellstad has been working, has been advising actually several African governments and public, um, on public financial management. So, um, what you will be, you will actually give us an introduction to some of the important elements of the book, or you, or what I've asked you to prepare some points on what new perspectives on international taxation capital flight from Africa the book offers. So, please. Can you hit me? No. You can. Okay, great. Thank you, Ingrid, and please uh, get that introduction in writing to me also. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, good to be here, um, and thank you for showing up. Uh, when I started to work on taxation issues in, uh, well, almost 30 years ago in Africa, uh, people, there were no, no big crowds like here, I tell you. That <laughs> was uh, an issue which mainly nerds uh, were interested in. But it has been a tremendous development, in particular during the last five, six, seven years. Uh, where this has tax has become a key issue uh, when it comes to development, and uh, it is also partly partly due to the efforts by the civil society organisations, which have really managed to put this on the public agenda, mainly related to international taxation. Um, I think you should also move forward to uh, look more into also domestic uh, taxpayers' taxpaying behaviour in developing countries, which is not very flattering. Uh, uh, either, um, and there are many issues to, to 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 take forward, follow up when it comes to to taxation and tax challenges uh, in developing country. And we also experience many challenges in our own our own country with respect to, for instance, many of the multi multinational companies, the new IT type of companies, the Googles and the Amazons, and so on and so on. Um, but when it comes to taxation, it is. A high priority for many or maybe most African countries to, to, to uh, uh, raise more domestic revenues, more tax revenues mainly. And this is also an important uh, component of the Addis Ababa uh, agenda, which Norway has also uh, signed that uh, support to developing tax systems in African countries shall be doubled by 2020. Double is not very impressive because it is at fairly low level for the time being, but uh, at least it's a target uh, and it may help. It is sure that taxes are needed to finance uh, public spending. That's obvious, we know that. And uh, we also know that tax uh, in principle is important to economic growth and redistribution. Um, and uh, it is for many African countries where foreign aid is important, it's also an issue of getting more independent financing sources than foreign sources, and also to escape the natural resource dependency, which many African countries also experience from oil, gas, minerals. But taxation is also very essential for state building, for building state-citizen relations. If uh, we have a tax system which is transparent, accountable, where people pay taxes, they get something in return. That is important for building constructive state-citizen relations. Uh, but what we also see in many, many African countries, other developing countries also, is that there is a very weak link between taxes paid and 
public spending, which of course erodes the this accountability dimension of uh, between uh, which the tax system can contribute with in 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 uh, in, in many countries. We also uh, know that the widespread tax avoidance and evasion, both by multinational companies and uh, elites and other uh, taxpayers in, in African countries, uh, undermine this revenue base. Um, and as Sigri also mentioned, uh, that uh, it is the case that African, it is also documented and estimated that African countries, uh, relative to their size, lose more in corporate tax evasion than countries elsewhere in the world. Uh, the international tax system, uh, including tax havens or secrecy jurisdictions, facilitates tax evasion and avoidance. And there are many examples uh, which uh, you are familiar with and which has been exposed during, not least through the civil society organizations work that multinational companies may pay little tax uh, uh, because they transfer profits to tax savings um, or other mechanisms which, which undermine state tax liability. And it's also very well documented that many wealthy Africans hide their wealth in ta tax savings. This, the Swiss leaks and the Panama Papers and uh, Lux Papers also documents this. Tax savings or secrecy jurisdictions uh, or offshore financial centers, they are designed to facilitate secrecy and tax avoidance uh, or innovation. Tax savings, they offer firstly, a they offer a combination of uh, uh, low or zero tax rates to foreign individuals and companies. They there are very limited regulations there uh, when it comes to reporting uh, who is actually present with accounts in these, re uh, these uh, jurisdictions to other countries' tax administrations, for instance. There's also an extreme degree of secrecy about the ownership of registered corporations and individual assets. And secrecy is the result of the national bank secrecy laws in tax savings, which are designed to prevent sharing of information about their clients to other uh, jurisdictions, other countries. Uh, and the legislation makes it simple to register shell companies which have few or no activities in the tax saving. Uh, you, are might, you have probably heard about Ugland House in Cayman Island, where in one small house, almost 13,000 companies were registered in mailboxes. No proper activities. But it is also a misconception that tax havens are only these small islands in the sun. The largest recipients of offshore financial capital are Switzerland, followed by London, New York, Luxembourg, and Singapore. And globally, the easiest place to create a secrecy account is the US state of Delaware. The, um, in, in the book, which I think is officially launched now, Sigri, right? Yes. Uh, in the book which Sigri launched now, uh, we introduced some new and also policy-relevant research findings on key challenges that tax savings also pose for development in Africa. And we, there we also explore the extent of uh, the problem, the actors involved, um, 
effects of tax savings and secrecy jurisdiction, and also some policy measures. Um, this is a fairly new field of research. So we supplement uh, our findings uh, with the voices of international, some leading international scholars, which have contributed with small, ch short chapters, two, three pages, based on their research. Um, and uh, the, the, the chapter, the, the book is, as Sigri mentioned, it is organized in five sections, and each section includes a presentation of the topic and uh, a selection of short articles by prominent researchers and tax experts. Some of them are here. Atia, Olaf, and for instance. And um, uh, it is also clear that many of the challenges which our countries experiences are context specific. Africa is not a country. Africa, there are 54 countries, very different. Challenges are different. Uh, history is different. Institutions are different. But there are some common de denominators uh, across the continent. And we try to show these through examples from various countries and with articles by uh, experts on the different African countries. So we really hope that the book will be useful for uh, a wide range of readers uh, from uh, policymakers, tax officers. We have people here from the Norwegian Tax Administration, I really hope you will enjoy reading it. Civil society, people, media. Uh, in Tanzania, it has been very much referred, cited by the media, by academics, civil society. I hope this will happen here also. Uh, and uh, I think it's worthwhile to, it's Easter soon, so maybe you should bring it with you in your backpack <laughs> and, uh, and enjoy it. So thank you so much and have a good read. Thank you, Odd Helge. Are there any questions to Odd Helge at this point? Okay, then we'll just move on with the, with the program and I'll introduce our next speaker, who is uh, Dr. Atia Waris. Uh, she is a lawyer uh, working at the law school uh, at the University of Nairobi in Kenya. Uh, also, she's connected with the University of Rwanda and the Center for Human Rights at the University of Pretoria. She has over 13 years of experience in research into tax law and policy. And she has published extensively on a range of issues, um, inclu including, but not limited to, because the list was so long, <laughs> no. uh, tax and constitutions in Africa, um, tax in conflict and post-conflict societies, um, illicit financial flows, transfer pricing, tax treaties, and financial centers. However, her research is focused on uh, the linkages between tax and human rights, uh, making it very relevant in this context. Uh, this is discussed in her book, uh, Tax and Development, which came in 2013, and which I believe is uh, avail available. Um, and also, um, uh, Dr. Tia Waris uh, advises um, the Kenyan government on fiscal issues, and she's worked as a consultant for uh, multilateral organizations globally. She is currently directing a research grant on uh, tax and human rights funded by the Open Society. Also, 
she's a contribu contributor to the book that we are uh, launching today. Um, it's a very interesting article where she discusses the establishment of international finance centers, um, maybe ta tax havens, uh, in developing countries, focusing on the case of Kenya. Actually, a, a viewpoint I had never heard of until now. Uh, she will be talking about how African countries engaged wi engage with international financial centers and what the consequences are for the societies. So please. Thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and I hope you enjoy this. It's going to be a little bit different from what we did this morning, so hopefully you will get something across of the concepts and perspectives. Um, it's always a pleasure to be in Oslo and I love this country. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's not a sign to drink. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when I was trying to look through how African countries engage with IFCs, uh, which are international financial centers, the, the question that kept coming to my head was, do I look at the people or do I look at the countries? So let's look at the whole set of stakeholders who play in this game that engage with what is an international financial center. And thank goodness, Odd defined it for me already. So it's a place where you go and park money if you want to hide it. It's also a place where you might have your subsidiary located. It can be legitimate, it can be illegal, it can be legal, it can be normal. I mean, it, there's a whole range of activities that take place in what is an international financial center or a tax haven or a secrecy jurisdiction. All of these mean exactly the same thing. They can call them offshore centers, but they're also not necessarily offshore. Offshore is if they're on an island somewhere. So, you know, London could be an offshore center. After Brexit, it probably will be. <laughs> so, yeah, that was st for the stand-up comedy section uh, of today. Anyway, so who, who engages with these when it comes to African countries? In, in African countries, well, we're 54 countries. And all of them have different levels of engagement. We have countries that have never, ever dealt with tax havens at all. We have some that have dealt with them, but then had civil war and conflict, and then people died. And then there isn't memory of how to engage with them. That has also happened. Then we have the ones that are developing and growing, and as we continue to globalize, are continuing to engage and learn about ideas. Now, as you go up this group of what I categorize as four different types of countries on the continent, you start to see different levels of engagement with the global financial system. But no matter what level they're at, one thing for sure is happening. People are aware of financial centers and they are aware of the fact that elites, rich elites, whomever they are, do not keep their money within the continent. This kind of information has started to pretty much go across the board. So if even if you go into some villages, I've been to villages sometimes in Kenya where they actually ask me about tax havens and I almost have a stress attack. I'm like, oh, this is really good, okay. So everybody kind of seems to have understood that there is something like this, but the question is how do they engage with it? Well, civil society or local communities or groups are really concerned about earning their daily bread. So they don't really figure into this. But the, the lower or the working classes or the unemployed who operate within urban areas tend to not only know about it, but they tend to ask a lot of questions about it. So in Kenya, we have something called Bungela Wana Inchi, which is basically a people's parliament that was set up in a, in a public park. They actually have official parliamentary sessions. And they're a bunch of out of work people, 
bunch of laborers, there are lots of policemen there, and they just have illicit issues and they talk about their illicit financial flows and offshore centers and they ask me about Mauritius. So there's these different levels starting to come about, but how they engage with it is the knowledge, but nobody yet knows at that level how to stop it from happening. So that's your second layer that starts to come about. The third layer is really the people with real financial knowledge and financial means to engage with a center actively. And what they do is they look and see how different centers operate. So if I want to go to Dubai and set up a company there, sometimes you have to pay $50,000 or $5,000, depending on where you locate your financial, your, your company in, uh, in Dubai. And I get you know, free access to do whatever I want in Dubai, I get a visa, and I move in and out and around the world. That is one kind of financial center, and we have people engaging with that at the African level. On the other hand, if you're somebody with not that much money, then you can set up a, uh, a company in Mauritius, where you pay $100 a year and no tax. So what would you love to do? 30% tax in Kenya or $100 in Mauritius, and you're free and clear. So this is how the engagement starts to work. The engagement that has begun on the African continent is the upper middle class and the upper class are beginning to engage with the cheaper uh, tax havens or illicit financial, I mean, in international financial centers. So there's this category that is starting to emerge. Then you start to have the ones that are wealthier. And with the wealthier ones, you also have the ones with more complex corporate structures. Now they start to engage in the bigger financial centers, the more well-settled ones. But we're not yet in there. So they will go into Hong Kong or Singapore. They might go into the Bahamas. And these will be corporate structures, beautifully designed or not so well designed. If you catch up with them, it means they're not so well designed. And they start to engage in international business and trade from that perspective. Now let's come back down again. There is somebody else using it. They're called poachers. They're narcotics dealers. They're small arms traders. And they're all on the continent. So let's, I'll, I'll give you the example of poaching because it, it's really fascinating and, and frankly a little scary. So when they poach ivory, they have to go stockpile it and then they bury it in different places around the continent. The most recent discovery was tusks out of Uganda that then landed in South Sudan that then moved up to Khartoum. And this is actually a study where they implanted a tracking system into a fake tusk and got a poacher to actually move it along without them even realizing it. And the task moves all the way then off into either China or the United States. Those are the two big markets. Now, how is the money moved? So one is the item that's moving that's illegal. The second part is the money. Well, the money is moving by deposits into financial centers. And of course, Delaware is number one on the list. So if you're dealing with ivory, that's the place you go. If you're doing it in China, then Hong Kong and Singapore. So there is connections out of criminal activity that goes directly into this. And this is how the engagement is taking place. And so what happens is the local person gets an account set up automatically without production of documents, accounts are set up and you get your payment out there in the world. Then all you have to do is walk into that bank and say, here's my ID and you get your bank. So these are the different ways in which there's engagement off the continent with the ISPs. So these are now, that's criminal activity, but there's other types of um, financial centers. There are about 90 across the world. And in those 90, there is now competition. 
So if I go to Switzerland, there is less tax on royalties. So Kenya discovered the mobile <coughs> money payments. You know that? The, uh, we call it M-Pesa. It's extremely famous. Um, but the intellectual property, the, the copyright, the patent for that technology is registered in Switzerland, not in Kenya. Because as an international financial center, in Switzerland, there is no taxation on royalties for what we call intellectual property. So this is how they're starting to shift. Musicians, including ours, are now registering companies in the Balkans because there's no tax for them to pay if they have big concerts and whatever for them. And ours are now doing it as well. We're catching up, basically, with the systems that are already in place and we're learning from it. So what are the consequences of this? And whether it is an African engaging with an, uh, with an international financial center or tax haven, or whether it's a non-African, the consequences will be predominantly the same. However, the effect on the continent tends to be more amplified because we have that, mu that much less resources available once you take off whatever you take off at the top. So the consequences tend to be money leaving a particular country or a continent. The second thing ha that starts to happen is when the money lands wherever it lands, it gets used as investment. It's used to give out loans. It's used to develop the country where it lands. So the International Financial Center benefits immediately because it's illegal money that nobody can trace and nobody can really use because they would get caught or something. Like they would just stop it. And uh, a famous story about Sunny Abata was that he had so many accounts in both the UK and Switzerland and he only kept them in his head, which is also what still happens, with the result that nobody even knows how many accounts he had and how much money he had. And the result is that the bankers simply waited until the family stopped looking for money, and then they div divided it among themselves. That could be part of my comedy stand-up or the truth. I don't know which one. Um, but it does also then encourage illegal activity. <coughs> so if illegal activity continues to be vibrant in places where you can hide money, it also means that the people who engage in illegal activity know that there is a place to be if they do continue to engage in it. Which means your second generation will then also see that as a potential way of moving forward. And then they will co get corrupted again. So this is a system that is encouraging people to do things that are not only unethical and illegal, but also immoral, depending on what you look at. And I don't want to paint them all black, so I will, I will, I will end with um, the upside of an uh, international financial haven. It is the only reason I think anybody would ever engage with it. Not because of secrecy, because it, the secrecy for me is irrelevant. I think it is, it is useless to have secrecy when you're dealing with finance and the economics. The only reason it has value is if you're dealing with a country that has a lot of conflict then communities in that country that have money would like to put their money somewhere secure. That means somewhere usually offshore. That doesn't mean a financial center there. It doesn't mean there has to be secrecy. It just means a safe place to operate. That is the only reason that I think is, is um, the reason that you should have an international financial center. But it's a very interesting um, space, it's, it's very much uncharted, the data is still not yet clear, so there's a lot to do. Um, 
Thank you. Uh, just before you leave the stage, Sophia, are there any questions directed now? Yeah, please. Uh, if you just, yeah, you can come up here and talk in the, uh, the mic or you can just speak up loudly. So there are 200 countries in the world, approximately, and there are 90 financial centers. So half the world is already doing it at different, in different ways. On the African, let's just look at Africa. Uh, we have 54 plus countries, and out of those 54 plus countries, every single country has got what are called exemptions or incentives. So all of these countries already have rules and regulations in place that allow for some of these things to take place. But none of them make a deliberate effort to attract foreign uh, funding. Now, why wouldn't the rest join? Well, some are joining. Botswana joined in 2003. Ghana tried to join in 2009. And Kenya just joined a year ago. So it's actually happening as we speak. I think that the delay is probably because, well, um, I, I, I joke about this a lot. There are not too many tax experts in Africa. So they don't really have capacity in many parts of the continent, so they've never really actually thought about it. There's also that debate. When your country is burning and people are killing each other, you're not going to be thinking about a financial center. It comes when your country has reached a certain level of stability and economy, and then you're trying to now grow it, and that seems to be a direction they start to take at a certain point in your economic history. I hope that sort of answers your question, but it, it's a very complex question. And I to say Thank you so much. Any other questions? So then we'll move on. Thank you. Our next speaker, Catherine Ngina Motava, is the associate director at the, the Strathmore Tax Research Center in Kenya. She's an expert on double tax agreements and she holds a master's in law in international taxation from New York University and a bachelor of law from University of Nairobi. She has worked as a tax researcher in Netherlands at the International Bureau for Fiscal Documentation. And this is an organization that specializes in tax research and cross-border taxation. Also, she's worked with KPMG, who uh, some of you also uh, know here, and we, we have a Norwegian branch, actually, of KPMG, of course, they're all over the world. Um, and KPMG is one of the leading tax firms in Kenya. Uh, and she has been involved in uh, the setup and the running of tax departments for two leading law firms in the country. So in other words, you have quite, uh, quite in-depth insights in these, in these issues, from what I can understand. Um, she will be talking to us about what initiatives on taxation and governance are currently being undertaken by African countries. So please. All right, yeah, definitely louder. Um, 
so I'm, I'm looking at it from the tax perspective. So you've been told about all the illicit financial flows that are flowing out of Africa. So I'm looking at the, the tax part of it. And because I've worked both for the good guys and the bad guys, well, KPMG is not that bad, but you know, I have worked for both. Uh, so I can sort of tell you how the, the money moves, but for that you might need to pay me. But uh, I can tell you about the initiatives that Africa has come up with to try and stop the illicit financial flows. Now, one of the ways, um, when, when we're talking about the illicit financial flows, there is the outright illegal one, where it's um, poaching, for example, where we're moving ivory, where we're selling drugs, we're selling arms. And I don't know how, how it's possible that in Africa, there's a lot of arms dealing that goes on, especially because I think very few countries in Africa actually produce arms, so that, that always gets to me. Anyway, uh, so there's a lot of the proper uh, illegal activities. Uh, there's the bribery side of it, the corruption side of it, and you know, Africa, we feature high on the list of corruption. Uh, but the largest part of it normally comes from tax evasion and tax avoidance. And so when the, when the continent is normally trying to deal with reducing these illicit financial flows, they will normally focus, they will, they will focus a bit on the money laundering and on the corruption and all these other things, but a lot of focus will also be given on the tax part. Now the thing with Africa that you need to know is this, we are excellent. We are very, very good at coming up with laws. In fact, if you need laws written, come to Africa. We, we have some of the best laws in the world. And I am not kidding, we are very, very good at it. Uh, you can come, come look at our laws, for example, on corruption, you'd be shocked. You might, you might actually wonder how it's possible that we're still top 10 in the corruption index, but we're very, very good at it. Now, when it comes to the issue of taxation and how money flows out, a lot of it will normally flow out in a number of ways. So one of the things that people do is, for example, if uh, Norway is exporting oil uh, to say, who do you export your oil to? Say maybe to the UK, or maybe I should have used an African country. Let me use Kenya, for example. We sell flowers. Most of the flowers that you probably buy in your shops are from our farms. So say, for example, uh, the flowers in Kenya, the person growing them is a subsidiary of a Dutch company, which is almost always the case. They will sell the flowers, and the flowers will probably be sold at, say, maybe five million shillings or five million dollars. But the invoice will read three million. So the money that will actually come to Kenya will be three million. Then there will be a separate invoice that will be issued. And that invoice will show that you should deposit this money not in the Kenyan account, but you should deposit it in an account, say maybe in Mauritius or in Switzerland or somewhere else. So there's a discrepancy in the amounts that are stated in the invoice. So that's what they call uh, misinvoicing. So you're you're not really invoicing properly uh, so that the money doesn't always come in. So it's outrightly, like you can tell there's fraud happening, but it's very hard to catch because how will Kenya ever know that they were not supposed to get three million, but they were supposed to get five million? So some of the initiatives that they have come up with, for example, is to require uh, countries to come up with what they call transfer pricing. So for example, if I am dealing with a person to whom I am related with, uh, if I'm buying a house, for example, from my, I should not say my mother. My mother will always sell to me everything at market price. <laughs> she does, she never gives me discounts. So <laughs> let me use my father instead. My father is, you know, girls and, you know, fathers and their girls. 
Uh, so my father is likely to be much nicer to me. So if he's selling to me a house and the house is worth three million shillings, my father is likely to tell me, okay, fine. You're my daughter, I brought you up, I want you to own a home. So, you know, I'll sell it to you at one million. The rest, you know, we can always figure something out in between and all that. My mother, on the other hand, will demand the three million shilling cash in advance before any transfer is done. <laughs> okay? And so what transfer pricing demands is that when you're dealing with somebody with whom you're related, for example, if it is a parent and a subsidiary, then you make sure that the transaction is at what they call arm's length. So that the amount of money, for example, that would be moving from, uh, say, the Netherlands for the flowers to Kenya is the amount of money that would be moving if the Dutch company were buying the flowers from a completely unrelated person. Now, the reason why that is extremely important is because when two people are related, you always want to move the money to the person who will be taxed the least. So say, for example, if the Dutch company, uh, if the tax in the Netherlands is, say, 5%, I'm not saying it is, but if it is 5% and the tax in Kenya is 30%, where would you like to be taxed? In the Netherlands, of course. So you try and move as much money as possible to the Netherlands and uh, move as much money out of Kenya as is possible. So transfer pricing comes in to say you can't do that. So they require you to come up with documentation showing how you've come up with the price, that the price is comparable to what you would be selling to a, a, an unrelated person. Now that is all well and good, but you have a slight problem, for example. Um, how many... How many uh, countries do you know that actually produce flowers, for example? I mean, sorry? Three. Which ones? <laughs> <laughs> the Netherlands, well, yes, the Netherlands, they grow a lot of tulips and, <laughs> but you see, yeah, but we grow lots of the roses and all that. So it's very, very hard, for example, to get comparative data. Uh, the Netherlands situation is completely different from the Kenyan situation. The labor is completely different. The costs are completely different. So the even the pricing in the Netherlands would be completely different. So that's one of the challenges that they face. It's very, very hard to get comparable data on this. Something else that they, tried that they have tried to do again is to try and sort of harmonize the incentives. Now, this is being done in different regions. For example, the East African countries have what they call the East African community, which is sort of like a regional block, sort of like your, a very rudimentary form of the European Union. Yet our documents are much better than the European Union. I tell you, we are, very, we are excellent at writing documents. So what they have done is they, had, they decided, for example, that rather than each country try and compete on which incentives you can offer, which is what we have been doing, for example, if you reduce the, if you give, if, if Kenya gives a, a tax holiday for 10 years, Uganda says, okay, we'll give you one for 12 years. Then Tanzania says, we'll give you one for 15 <coughs> years. So after a while, it's all a race to the bottom. So what they did, what they have tried to do, they sat down and said, okay, fine, we need to come up with sort of like a code, how we are going to act when we're trying to attract investment. They even came up with a document. I tell you, documents we have. The question of whether or not that is being applied is something else entirely because one country eliminated all its incentives, then the other said, we are going to do it. This is how many years later? I want to say maybe all close to 10 years later. And now rather than eliminate, the countries that remained with the incentives have increased the incentives that they have. So that's a challenge that we're having. The, the, the 
the thought is, you know, we have a very, very good thought on the one hand, but the implementation is something else. Something else that we're trying to do as well is when we are signing our tax treaties, again, we sort of need tax treaties, well, we don't, but tax treaties are very good for eliminate, eliminating double taxation. So for example, if you come to work in Kenya, the Norwegian government wants to tax you because you're carrying a Norwegian passport, and the Kenyan government wants to tax you because, well, you're making your money in Kenya. So a double tax treaty tells you who gets the right to tax you, so that you're not taxed by both countries. Now, what happens is we, we, we have not been very proactive in the past in signing tax treaties, but all, all of a sudden our government has realized we could be signing tax treaties. Now in Africa, discoveries, in fact, if you ever want a discovery to spread very quickly, bring it to Africa. Because once you give us an idea, we can run with it much faster than everybody else. That's why mobile money is very big in our country and nowhere else. We are, ve we are very, very good at such things. Now, what they did was, now that we have discovered that we can sign tax treaties, we are signing with everyone. We don't discriminate, okay? So we do not discriminate on who it is that we're going to sign with, neither do we have a policy. A few countries have a policy, but most of us will just say, oh, China. Okay, we have a lot of Chinese coming in. Okay, that will work. Sign a treaty with them. That's it. So we don't sit down, it doesn't go to parliament, it's not argued out. So the lack of a policy is a problem. So what they've done is the different regions, regional blocks have started coming up with uh, policies and some countries are coming up with policies. The problem is that the policies are sort of being overridden by the politics because our executive is very, very powerful. Now, one of, my, one of my friends was telling me about how we signed a treaty with Nigeria, for example. They woke up in the morning, they went to work, then they were duly informed that the president was flying to Nigeria. So before they could go home and pack, they were told, you need to get to the airport, get on a plane, go to Nigeria, and by the time we're coming back, you need to come back with a tax treaty, which is how we got a tax treaty uh, initiated with Nigeria. So there was no research, there was no particular reason other than the fact that I think our president likes the president of Nigeria, I think. I think that was the main reason why we signed it. So that was the, so that's another thing as well. So we're coming up with policies but we're not applying them. Uh, and the, one of the last things is we are trying to put in the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative program, which is sort of an initiative in the mining sector so that we, uh, there's more transparency in the area. A lot of the companies that own the oil fields, the diamonds, the, the most of the mining companies, you can never tell who the beneficial owner is. You try and trace it and then after a while, sort of the trace disappears somewhere in Mauritius, Cyprus, you know, Bahamas, one of the places where, where which Dr. Sia talked about. So what the, what the, the uh, this particular initiative, what it asks for is publish this information. Let us know who is the actual owner. Let us know how much you sold. Let us know how much uh, everyone owns. What are you doing in the environment and all those things. So it's a good idea, but it has, it will take a while, for example, to get implemented because it means changing a lot of your laws. So these are some of the uh, particular initiatives that are coming in. There are others like exchange of information, which means that we agree that if you get any information about my, uh, a resident of Kenya, 
please share it with me if you're the revenue authority of Norway. Uh, now, the problem with that, again, is there's an asymmetry of power. Uh, are the Norwegians particularly interested in giving Kenya information on a Kenyan who's come in and deposited a couple of billion dollars in their accounts? Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> Kenya will never know. How will they ever know? And then Kenya, of course, if you're a Norwegian and you come and you deposit, you know, a billion dollars in our accounts, we'll say, but he's investing. Why would you want to sell us our investor? So we won't sell it. So there's that problem as well. It requires honesty. It requires a, a bit of morality on our part. And on the part of Kenyans, one of, of the biggest problems that we have is a problem of the heart, not a problem of the law. We have the laws. We just don't have the moral aptitude to apply them. So thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, are there any questions now? This point. Thank you so much. We'll move uh, move on to our next speaker, Olaf Lundstøl. Uh, he's policy director at uh, of tax and capital flight at uh, Norad, the Norwegian Agency for Development Cooperation. Um, and he's also a PhD candida candidate in tax policy at the University of Pretoria. Uh, he has 20 years of experience uh, with development uh, economics work in Latin America, uh, Asia and Africa. And among other issues, the emphasis of his work has been on extractive industries, public financial management, corruption and international financial flows. So quite relevant to what we're talking about today, in other words. Um, he has held a range of positions, including being an, an advisory board member at the Central Bank of Tanzania and a peer reviewer with the International Center of Tax and Development, as well as being on the board of the Tax Justice Network, actually. Um, according to my sources, he was one of the first people who, within the Norwegian governmental structure, focused on the consequences of corporate, uh, corporate taxation policies in resource-rich countries at a time where no one else actually um, bothered much with these questions. So today we will be, uh, for the Norwegians here, uh, we will be moving back home. And uh, we uh, are asking you the question, where should the focus be for Norwegian policymakers in the face of tax evasion and capital flight in Africa? Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. And we'll try also to, to say something a bit different from what we did earlier today in Parliament. Uh, I think the question making here also puts the stage for that. And, um, so I will try to be quite brief. I will just try to make some points on, on a few different levels in terms of this challenge, in terms of policy making and where should the emphasis be. Uh, I think at least we can talk about three levels, or at least I will try to say something introductory on three levels. The first one is on the global agenda and the global level. And there, obviously, a lot of what is being commented in the book, a lot of what you are engaged working on is is uh, on that level, basically. And Norway has been quite active. I think it's we can discuss a little bit whether it has been a bit of a down period for a little bit, but we, we have been active when this agenda was on the way up. We can talk about from 2008, 2009, we had uh, a white paper that was quite influential on tax havens and development. 
and there was a push definitely globally and internationally to try to put put the issue on the agenda and to try to come up with the first estimates. Uh, what What is this issue in terms of illicit flows? There had been literature back in the 60s, 70s already on capital flight, but that was somehow more academic and, and uh, a bit more marginal. So this was a push that I think the Norwegian government did, uh, did uh, go and, uh, and do a lot, uh, lot of efforts. And I think quite a lot of the early efforts were together with civil society. So it was a drive that was really where civil society was a key uh, change maker. And I think that was very clear that there was civil society advanced research, so Odd Helge Felsta is here, and, uh, and a different research institution, the TaxCap Dev, was also came out of the, of the white paper. So there was a push there. And I, so I, I, I do think that the global change agenda has come quite a long way. I mean, we can discuss later on exactly whether it is uh, going in the right direction, whether it is actually addressing the structural problems, because one comment there is that what we have at the heart of this discussion is really a structural problem. I think it was hinted to maybe more in Parliament earlier this morning. But uh, the way that we look at, for example, a multinational company or an international enterprise is, is quite old-fashioned from a, a tax and accounting point of view. To some extent, it's a bit of an illusion. I mean, the whole discussion of transfer pricing, the whole logic of transfer pricing, uh, where you know, surplus or value added is generated, how value added and surplus is divided between capital and labor. So this is a big discussion both at the global level and also within the nation state actually. So there are a lot of different political agendas that mix into this. So we have one process that is very visible that Norway has been pushing quite a lot through OECD, the BEPS process, which is on tax avoidance and a number of actions taken there. But we discussed earlier that this is a process that perhaps is a bit hard to access for developing countries. Maybe they are not, they're definitely not in the driver's seat. And maybe there are a lot of other things they need to do first in a way. Uh, and the, pr the problem again is a bit that is the approach really the one we need? And I, I think Tax Justice Network has launched a book not too long ago also looking at this in terms of unitary taxation questioning a little bit whether we need a more fundamentally different approach to trying to tax international activity and international enterprise. I think uh, there is some work in the UN at, as this uh, as well, but there we have been not very perhaps loyal or we haven't followed up the UN as it needs to because there are two important institutions on a global level when it comes to the norm setting. So it's OECD and the UN. The UN, there was the agreement in 2015 that we should support the UN Tax Committee and, and have that track in addition to OECD that is more representative. That has not really happened, uh, so they are receiving some very small support. So they're able to do some minor work on uh, transfer pricing manuals, some few workshop, and uh, similarly on tax treaties. So it, it is a nice complementary and, and a bit more open process than the OECD perhaps in, s in bringing in more actively some developing countries. But what they are doing and is not really getting at the core of the challenge here. I mean, they're, they're not set up to do it really as it stands today. So it needs to, that needs to change gradually. Another driving force that is perhaps more progressive and we are in Norway looking to quite often is the EU. 
Now, and we have one of our own within the EU. We have Eva Jolie, who has been heading for a long time a very important committee, the development committee, and been driving a lot of the big, big uh, reform initiatives that have come from the EU have been thanks to Eva Jolie, thanks to a group of people that have been pushing quite forward-looking initiatives. And Norway tend to follow on this. We are sort of, we are saying we should not front it like we used to think perhaps earlier, but we, we follow when it comes to country-by-country country reporting, maybe beneficial ownership and a few other topics. So, so this is an area where Things are happening, and it's important to follow that agenda. But I think much more could happen. I think we are soon coming to a tipping point, perhaps, where some more drastic solutions could be tested out. And, and I think that Norway is in a position, actually, to go a bit faster. And we could even look to several developing countries who are going faster. There was a discussion earlier today on the Google tax, for example. So look to India, Catherine was, was saying, and other countries. Uh, might be challenges with how they're doing it, but uh, Brazil has been behaving differently in many areas. So, 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 so that is like some, some of the global discussion. Then we have at some point the Nordic and Norwegian change agenda. I mean, what do we do at home? This is linked to the global change agenda, but it's important in terms of consistency and coherence and the signal, uh, the signaling effect we are sending. So here we are also, I would say, sort of okay but we are we are sort of following what the eu is doing and internationally the tracks of the oecd um, but we could do more and we have been criticized by action aid by research by ictd when it comes to tax treaties and and how we are how we are working on those issues and uh, norad is working with an evaluation report there follow it up, up on the action aid report where we are will come out quite soon with some interesting findings, I expect, to see to what extent Norwegian tax treaties follow OECD or UN model and to what extent we are progressive or not. I think the finding will be that we are not necessarily very progressive. So we have quite a way to go and there is different ways. We had some discussion this morning on how to, to move on that agenda. And the last point, maybe most important, that I don't have that much time, but we can discuss later, is on the development policy and practice change agenda. Uh, perhaps if you ask where the focus should be, I mean, I, I come from NORAD, I work with the Tax for Development program, and I think there is a tremendous potential there. We have done some work earlier on in a few selected countries, but we can do much more. And now we have the political backing, we have signed up to the Addis Tax Initiative, so we are going to really scale up the interventions in the, in the next few years. So we can do much more at the country level. And also good news is that it's possible actually to do a lot domestically that has impact on the international dimension. This is a symbiotic relationship. So it's possible and we know from work in Tanzania and Zambia and several other countries that you can do reforms and you can put requirements nationally that can also impact, despite slow progress on the international level, to tax better, to collect more, and to collect more precise. Um, yes, and then I had, uh, I just wanted to make a reference also to this issue that uh, uh, a lot of challenges are at the domestic level and a lot of the change needs to start and happen there. And th th there is a fundamental difference, I believe it was mentioned earlier, between 
For example, I worked in Asia and Latin America and Africa, and I, I, I lived in Malaysia for a number of years, for example, and it's the same story in a way, and I lived in Brazil just a few years ago, that there is similarly problems with illicit flows, but the, problem, the, the, the upside is that the flows come back again. So for example, Brazil, who do you think is the largest FDI or foreign direct investor in Brazil? It's, it's Brazilians. Just like in India, you know, it's also Indians and through Mauritius. And so, so a lot of flows, a lot of funds are going out, but a lot of the money is coming in again. Similarly, of course, in Africa, a lot of the corrupt money or illicit money is, doesn't necessarily all flow out either, but quite a lot flows out and very little of that money that flows out comes actually in again compared with what is the case in Asia and Latin America. That is a major difference and that is a difference that hopefully with reforms and, uh, and uh, better governance and, and work on capacity building and institutions can, can start to improve. Thank you. Thank you, Ulla. I would like to now just invite the whole uh, panel up on, on the stage. Um, we have about 20 minutes left, so but we have time for still some questions from, from you guys. And also, I have some questions that I would really like to ask you. Um, I'll just start by again going back to uh, one of the questions that was raised uh, in the in the um, in the um, in the Facebook event of this uh, of this event, um, because as mentioned, campaign groups are putting a lot of emphasis on the existence of tax havens and illicit financial flows as hindrance to development. And I think sometimes we uh, almost we paint it as the silver bullet for development in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the developing countries around the world. Um, but are we exaggerating? Is it really the number one um, reason, challenge for, de for development? Or have we exaggerated the development poten potential? Um, I know there's an article here in this book about uh, debating the, the, s the how the size of illicit financial flows, that we don't really know mu much about how how much money we're talking about, but the campaign groups are, we are throwing around all these big, big numbers uh, that we use for campaigning uh, matters. We actually don't know, uh, yeah, the amount. So would really, if we managed to, let's say that all tax havens did disappeared tomorrow and we managed to curtail illicit financial flows, would that magically transform into uh, a beautiful new day for African countries? <laughs> Who would like to start? I can start. No. <laughs> That's a short version. I think, uh, I think it's, uh, it's definitely the, the issue of international tax avoidance and uh, the role um, uh, secrecy jurisdictions play when it comes to hiding uh, or facilitating tax evasion and avoidance is is an important challenge, uh, but I think um, I think uh, uh, and it's necessary to to address that. But I think there are other also very urgent 
issues which need to be handled when it comes to building effective tax systems in the African context. And there are many of the domestic tax bases which need to be shaped up. There is massive tax avoidance evasion by domestic taxpayers. Uh, there is also the big challenge of people well, Afrobarometer, they, you know, Afrobarometer, they are conducting surveys uh, covering more than uh, 30 countries uh, on a regular basis, every second or third years. And um, they have also asking people questions about, uh, about taxation. This is national representative samples. And uh, it is very clear from the surveys that Africans, the majority of the respondents, they say yes, the government are sh should collect taxes and tax and, and the citizens should are obliged to pay. But, and that's to come a big but, but we don't trust the government to use this money for the benefit of the, the people. We don't see things in this way. That can, of course, be an excuse to legitimize evasion, but it is a real challenge that a large chunk of tax revenues are actually disappearing in, s in the elites and others' pockets. So I will say a main challenge, maybe not number one, but the main challenge when it comes to building effective tax system is to establish stronger, better links between uh, tax payment and service delivery. Yes, I was, I was literally going to say the same thing. Um, one of the one of the issues I, I was researching on when I first started looking at taxation was actually every time I would hear the figures, I would say, yeah, that's great. So this was like 13 years ago. I would say, oh, that's wonderful. But, oh, my God, what if we actually got the money? <laughs> because <laughs> what is my country going to do with it? And then became the era of brand corruption. I mean, we coined the term brand corruption in, in Africa because the, the amounts that are disappearing are growing with our growing budgets and our growing tax collections. And so when, when I look at tax, I look at tax and I link it to human rights and the Millennium Development Goals and the, the, the SDGs that are now coming up. Because if we just take the collection part and don't link it to the expenditure part, then you'll only do half the job. And frankly, there is actually the bullet. Th but there is a collective, you have to do a collective, holistic move forward step by step, very gradually to get to there. And there's been a lot of criticism on the figure. And I actually cannot understand the figure sometimes. I mean, I've tried unpacking it. It has a lot of questions in it. But they are what people call guesstimates. I call it a guesstimate, not an estimate, because I can't figure out all of it all the way through. And I think that until we have enough research that can actually give us concrete figures, and we're already doing that research to unpack it as much as possible. We can't really tell the exact amount, but I actually think it's more. You think it's more than I think the um, I also wanted to 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 ask you, uh, Atia, because you were you were talking about. Um, uh, it was very interesting to hear you talking about how uh, different levels of society uh, in in African countries actually relate to the possibilities that exist in tax havens. And how 
if I understood it correctly, it's not uncommon for middle class citizens to actually use tax havens. And that that speaks to what uh, what you just said, Helge, about the, the trust between <laughs> between the people and the and the government. How um, can you first can you say something about how widespread is this? Actually, I mean, if the five of us were middle class Kenyans, how many of us would actually be putting money in Mauritius? Okay, C can I take you uh, one question back? How many of you might have an account abroad? Probably all of you. How many would have it in Mauritius? It would depend on your age. Um, uh, he would have it in the UK. Uh, nothing personal. Because he's studying abroad, he would have it in the country where he studied abroad, possibly. So I guess he would have it in South Africa, <laughs> which is also a tax haven. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> no, only if you were Kenyan, right? Um, and, and, and so that depends on that generation. And if I am a business person, up and coming, that would look like her or you, <laughs> then you would have it in Mauritius. And if I'm the wealthy businessman or businesswoman, I would have it in Dubai. In Dubai. Okay. Good to know. A uh, word of advice for all of you there. <laughs> um, Come see me later. <laughs> exactly. No, but I, I found I found that very interesting because how can what um, what what can be done about that? I mean, how can you? Uh, what can be uh, because obviously this, or is this a big problem? And how can you actually do something about it? Okay, so I, I will not say Africa because Africa is fifty-four countries, right? It. Um, what can you do about it? But this was the case of Kenya, oh where yeah, so we focused on. Okay, so the first, I mean, the first thing is to build trust between your population and your government, and that is not easy. But I believe that the best way to build trust is actually to spend first and not to ask first. And I think that one of the biggest problems we've had is that tax in, in many countries that were colonized has been a tool of oppression both before colonization and then we were joking about this today. Kenya's Income Tax Act is the 1920 colonial model ordinance income tax that is now the Income Tax Act of Kenya. So it's the exact same model the British brought in 1920. So we've got the same tool of oppression, we just have a different set of oppressors. That's the perception in the communities and in the societies. So if you want to change that, you need to spend on them. You need to spend the little that you have to make them feel that they're benefited so that you convert your unwilling taxpayer into a willing taxpayer. But the problem that we're, we are facing with right now is that the focus is predominantly on tax and tax collection. And the only thing that people see are the four tiers that Odd Helge talked about this morning, is you're already paying protection money or corruption money to these gangs if you're in certain classes, even to run your business in the market and to put your little cloth down on the ground, you had to pay somebody so they don't come take your tomatoes and run away with them or destroy your produce. Then you have county uh, council level um, payments, then you have federal level, and, and this is everywhere. So if you keep taking, and if I go to the hospital and I'm having a baby and I can't enter into the emergency because I don't have money, and then my child doesn't survive the process, and I pay taxes, then you have a disaster looming because 
maternal mortality, for example, is actually preventable. It's the one medical problem that is preventable. And so if you don't take those things into consideration and build your system, you will just keep sucking and taking and then using it for other things. Then your population will not want to join into the system. Catherine, would you like to comment? Uh, I don't know. Uh, Kenya is a, a very interesting place to live in. You should come visit. We have very interesting wild animals and all those things. You'll enjoy it. One of the things that um, was very interesting, a few years ago, the permanent secretary to the Ministry of Finance declared officially that a third of our budget every year goes to corruption. A third. Like it is, we're no longer, we're no longer guessing. Now we know that every year if you're passing a million shilling budget, then 300,000 shillings is going to corruption. So it seems even the government now takes into this into account as they do the budget. And so it has, it has been declared. Now, if you're coming from such a place and you're trying to create trust, it's, it's a very, very difficult thing. And when the citizens hear that a third of whatever I say is going into someone else's pocket, I mean, how many, how many people are willing to pay the factor for that? So it becomes almost justifiable to everyone to just not pay their taxes because I don't understand. Well, whereas in the US or in Norway, you people walk around, in fact, it's here in this in the US all the time. I pay my taxes and they say it like it's, a, it's an honorable, you know, I'm a patriot. I pay my taxes. I'm a good person. In Kenya, nobody can say that with, you know, with pride. You say, my taxes are collected. You know, I've been caught by the revenue authority. We don't say I pay my taxes like a, like a good citizen. No, 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 no. Because in your head, a third of what I'm paying is going to go into someone else's pocket. So bridge, uh, bridging that particular level of distrust is not an easy thing. But as she says, it has to start from somewhere. So provide a particular service. For example, uh, there are certain, we, we recently got a devolved government. And there are certain governments which have done particular well, particularly well in certain sectors. So there are very, they're not many, but they're very, very few. But those particular few ones where they have been providing very good services, for example, they provide very good health care and all those things. Regional governments, you mean? Yes, the yeah. middle governments, yeah. yeah. Okay. The people in those counties are not, they, they don't feel bad, too bad paying their taxes. They don't feel bad, for example, paying a fee to get a, a market stall because they know that the market stall will come, it will be clean, I should be well taken care of. If, however, I am paying for a market stall and I am not sure if I will get a market stall in the morning, then I might just find someone else has taken over it, then I, I have no incentive to pay it. So it's slowly getting into the system that we are trying to improve, but we are a very, very long way from that. Um. I would, um, I would like to, to um, uh, um, take us back to the multinational companies, the issue of the multinational companies. Uh, how does this actually impact? One thing is uh, the amount of money that are sucked out of uh, different societies from uh, multinational companies, but how does their uh, conduct, their tax conduct of um, um, tax evasion, tax avoidance impact the societies? Can say something about that? Some of you have touched upon it, but um, could you comment on that? Um, yeah, 
we have we have uh, discussed that it's also in the book the chapters there and, and it has been a part of the uh, well a key focus actually of uh, of uh, the research project one of the research projects we are running uh, under the tax cut dev program in the research council where we look into what impacts does the tax paying behavior on multinational companies and the elite and the elites have on ordinary taxpayers or uh, domestic businesses tax paying behavior uh, and we find some interesting findings um, um, but I should say that uh, multinational companies is not just one one body there are many different types of companies different sectors and also the behavior uh, also differs in some countries multinational companies may be the biggest taxpayers actually um, but there is a challenge with uh, with um, some or maybe many in some countries that they don't pay the fair share of what they are expected to pay in in some sectors like mining in some sectors like uh, telecoms finance and so on but we uh, but there is a there is a, a broad or a widespread perception and part of that perception is also true that multinational companies does and also the elite does do not pay the fair share of taxes so what and we find that that has impacts on the behavior of other of ordinary citizens and companies behavior for instance tax exemptions is extremely widespread in many uh, african countries um, and when we started to look into the we thought maybe tax exemptions that is probably something which only benefited benefits foreign companies uh, foreign investors yes they do but we found that a lot of domestic companies in construction sectors and other sectors also benefited from extremely generous exemptions and then we started to look why so these are these are domestic companies okay they are investors also but we found that they were lobbying extensively for tax exemption to level the playing field before before because they felt that multinational companies were treated in a different way they got much better conditions so therefore they thought it was reasonable and fair to to uh, to to get exemptions themselves and exemptions are extremely uh, generous in many african countries in some countries it has been estimated to be between 2 and 4% of gdp which is huge when we are talking about the total tax to gdp ratio of 12 13 14% that's one thing we also find that when it comes to uh, tax evasion by the elites, and there have been leaks, you have the Swiss leaks, you have the Panama Papers, and so on. In the Swiss leaks, there are a number of African leaders or wealthy persons, political connected persons who had hidden accounts. And uh, we thought, well, if people are informed about this, wouldn't they go out in the streets and protest and demonstrate like they did in Iceland when they got rid of the prime minister who had his uh, Virgin Island account? No. The effect, it, it was more a paralysis. People felt that this is how the elite actually behave. This is normal. We cannot do anything with it. it just resonate it. Um. We are nearing the end, uh, end of the session, but I, um, since we started a bit over um, over six, I hope that we can go a few minutes uh, over time. So are there any questions from you guys?
Yeah. Yep. Yep. Great question. Uh, would you like to start, Catherine? Oh. <laughs> I always depart to her because she was my teacher, she was my lecturer. <laughs> uh, any, any recommendations for Norwegian government? Uh, one, one um, require more from your companies. Um, if they're coming to invest and you're offering them some form of protection, require more from them, require them to comply with the local tax laws. The same way you would demand that they comply with the tax laws in, in Norway. Uh, secondly, if you're going to sign tax treaties, please, please try and make them fair. Uh, don't, don't, don't oppress the, the developing countries. Uh, we hold the resources. You never know. One day we could rise up and take over the world and you know, turn into the oppressor. You never know. <laughs> but seriously, don't. Uh, don't don't take advantage. It's 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 just not good, and the cycle keeps continuing, and it's yeah, it's not good. I, I always say that sometimes uh, we should stop selling coffee to Europe and yeah, see <laughs> see how they yeah. survive the coffee day, huh? <laughs> don't don't. <laughs> yes, they're done. Yeah. <laughs> told you it was comedy stand-up night <laughs> so <laughs> no but um policy recommendations um it it came up this morning and i really thought one of the most important things would be that before norway signs any more double taxation agreements and it should look at the ones that it already has in place and it should do an analysis on whether or not there is cost benefit so uh, doing a cost-benefit analysis on a treaty is really important when you're dealing with a country. And this is a, a recommendation that is going to come out in a report um, from, the, from the African Union, I think, in the next couple of months, because I've seen I, I, I helped uh, draft a report. And one of the things that we are, ask, uh, we are asking for is check and see what it benefited, who it benefited, how it benefited before you actually allow a particular treaty to continue in place and allow the African country to also do the same thing. So allowing access to information, I think, is really crucial um, across the board. There, there are many other issues, but that is the first one that comes to mind. The second one, I would say, on policy directions is uh, increase the money now. Don't do it in stages. We, we talked about this as well. It is possible. It can be done. So increase it. Why not? Take a chance, because sometimes I think a sudden shot of, uh, of uh, financing during a period of what is austerity actually has a better effect than reducing the amount because of the austerity. And there's a lot of uh, research and debate on it. And because um, Olaf says, you know, we take a step back and we let others do things and then we get there. I, I would like to challenge the Norwegian government to engage with the thinkers on the continent, speak to them, see what they say, and then look and see if there are ideas there that make sense for, for the government to, to take on board. Because, to be honest, the Norwegian aid and how it works has actually been much more effective than the other uh, European countries. And so they're, they're clearly doing things the right way, but I don't want them to step down. Yeah. Yes. Okay, final question from the back there. Anybody? 
so I started working on the connections between tax and human rights because social welfare is not as well known on the continent as human rights is. So, so one of the results of this massive push on human rights globally is that even people in the village understand rights to education and rights to healthcare. But then again, we get, we get blocked by we don't have enough resources. So in, in 2005, 2006, when I started to work on the area, people thought I was crazy. Now people buy the idea and it, it's starting to grow and it's growing at an incredible pace. So already um, there have been big projects funded by the European Commission on financing health and the right to health specifically. So there's already connections in the health sector and I think that the NGOs working on health move a lot faster than the ones in other fields and this is what I have seen. The, the second group of NGOs are the ones working in gender. The gender, there's a huge push um, from gender, like Femnet in Africa is, is a very well-known uh, women's rights organization. They are pushing on is issues of illicit financial flows. They're already talking to their women in the villages about it. So gender seems to be the second one that has moved forward. Um, the other ones that are starting to move forward but not as fast are education. There seems to be sporadic um, civil society working on ed education. I mean, Action Aid does reports now and always puts in, and this is how much it costs, you know, your taxpayers. So that is starting out as well. And in Sweden, there is an organization called Forum Seed. Forum Seed, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it right. But SYD. And they also have been doing uh, interesting work uh, and analysis on how to make those connections. And then, of course, globally now there are meetings on financing for development and human rights taking place at the, the same time. And the SDG meetings have joined these both together. They join them together in Addis as well with the tax initiative. So the linkages are coming in at the political level and also at the civil society level at the same time. And I guess the meeting that was in um, February at the UN, which just passed by, there was a lot of interaction between civil societies of different fields. And in Geneva, there is the annual forum on business and human rights. They don't talk so much tax, but they do do business and human rights, and tax is starting to come in there as well. Yeah, I think this is a very interesting because also in Norad where I work, I mean, the areas that are most interested now in DRM and tax is health and education. And we have very close dialogue. And we should keep in mind, I mean, when we talk about this thing of Norway being in the front or not, I mean, I'm talking about the sh political shifts a bit. Yes. We all know that the current government and our prime minister is champion on education. She's also champion on the SDGs. So there is a lot about also the storylines here. I mean, how do you make the connections? Mm. How do you put things together? So I mean, if you, are, if you know already from MDGs that 77% of financing came from domestic sources, we know already for SDGs more than 90% will come from domestic sources. And where are the biggest financing needs? Oh, some of the biggest are in health and education. So we need to make this connection. We need to have the storylines. We need when Arna Solberg is going to Davos talking about difference, she needs to talk about anti-corruption, she needs to talk about IFF, tax. These things need to be connected much more than before and we need to use the venues actively, feed these messages and have it put together such that it makes sense. We'll have to end there. Uh, I know there are people who want to ask questions who weren't able to. I'm sorry about that. Hope the, com uh, the conversation can continue. Thank you so much to all of you guys. And now Johan from uh, Norwegian Council for Africa would like to finish, uh, finish the whole show off. <laughs>
Yes, uh, thank you all. Ola, Vodelge, Atia, Katrina, Nigri. Before I give you this, uh, all this to token of appreciation um, from the council. Uh, um, <laughs> um, hello, everybody. My name is Johan Heimstad. I'm the director of the Norwegian Council for Africa, and we're very excited to be co hosting this launch. Um, uh, and I think, in, uh, in a very, very sort of interesting and well put way, we've sort of mapped out uh, the challenge that this is, and also, uh, in a great way, the complexity of it, uh, the intersection, inter intersectionality between uh, sort of the, interna the international nature and the national nature uh, of, 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 the, of the problem throughout the continent. Um, and I think that's, that's something that we sort of need to keep in mind. Olav um, started out, uh, at some point you, you sort of talked about how, how civil society and different types of actors, knowledge produ uh, producers like the contributors to this group have sort of pushed this agenda. Uh, and I'd like to sort of finish off by, by challenging you guys to be a part of, uh, of now we have here, a piece of knowledge uh, that has been produced uh, in, a very in, in, an, in a very good way. And what I would like to challenge you guys to do is to take part uh, with, for instance, the Norwegian Council for Africa in um, performing our part of the job as civil society to push um, the discussion further uh, publicly in Norway and to push uh, policymakers and, and uh, companies to perform in a better way and to, and to um, uh, make things right gradually, understanding the limitations of, uh, of our influence, um, but still uh, sort of making the change that we possibly can. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>